Are you known more for what you're for or against? Think that through with us next on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. As the world continues to get darker by the minute, we can so easily get off track. And before you know it, we're focusing on all the wrong things in life. Today on Abounding Grace, Pastor Ed Taylor shows us how to stay on track in the light and how to be the light of the world that God wants us to be. Let's turn to John chapter 8 and get started. Now we're in John chapter 8. And in John chapter 8, Jesus, in the beginning there, was met with this woman caught in the midst of adultery, she was taken advantage of by the spiritual leaders. It, we've, we've, the, the thing about this section is we have studied it, and it's almost like we kind of take it, that's just the way it is. Um, and we lose the significance that these were spiritual leaders that were responsible for representing God to the people. They would be what we would equate today as pastors and elders of the church. They would be the ones that we look to. I think in my own mind, my pastor Jeff, this would be Pastor Jeff uh, in my mind who for some reason decided that he didn't want to represent God anymore, but he wanted to represent himself. Or from me to you, that you meet your pastor, and now he just wants to manipulate because somebody comes on the scene, and they're speaking the truth, and because of the religion that was all set up, instead of yielding to the truth in person, they take it into their own hands. This is, this is a tragic, tragic opening to the chapter. Not just tragic for the woman, but tragic for the spiritual leaders of the day. Tragic for the spiritual climate of the country. It's tragic for everything about that section. We could spend, we spent about three weeks in the first 12 verses looking at various aspects of this section. We could easily spend another couple weeks, and if I did, one of them would be the significance and the weight of spiritual leadership in the church today. And for those of you that have a calling to spiritual leadership and those of you that are serving, whether it be in our Sunday school or you're serving in Bible study or opening your home to a community, it's no small thing. The Bible says that those that teach the Bible are responsible for a stricter judgment. There's a stricter judgment for us that are growing in maturity to help those that are not so mature to grow in the things of the Lord. So the first section here is tragic. And it's it's really a picture of the darkness of the world that Jesus lived in. And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, and I know it is for you too, for for your life as well, this is a general universal issue, but it is very tiring and exhausting to have people mess with you and mess with your life. Have you had anybody mess with your life? It's very tiring and exhausting. You know, manipulation, passive-aggressive nonsense, uh, things like trying, like Jesus. You go, "Why, why are you mentioning that? Because we've got a group of people that are trying to test and trap Jesus. This is his life. People are messing with Jesus. Instead of yielding to him, they're trying to manipulate him. They're trying to test him. They're trying to trap him. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Just constant, constant, constant. Now, the Bible says, Peter would put it this way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he talks of the devil or your adversary or your enemy as, as one that's walking around, roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Um, that's no small thing where you just got this. It's just constant. It's always there. And that's what was happening with Jesus. And in the midst of that, he has this woman that's, that's just thrown right in front of him, been taken advantage of, and she's got her own issues in life. And Jesus releases her from her sinful bondage by forgiving her of her sins. How could he do that? Well, he's going to take the penalty of her sins upon himself. It's the same way he forgives you and me. She's going to look forward to his death. We look back on his death and resurrection. It's the same place of forgiveness. And after that whole scene has taken place, those religious leaders leave his presence. They don't gain the grace and love that he... They they would have stuck around, I believe. They would have received the same thing she did. If they would have stuck around broken and humble, even in their worst condition, they would have still received forgiveness. But they leave. She stays. And in verse 12 now, Jesus says... He spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. A very powerful statement in a very dark world. Jesus lived in a very dark world, just like you and I live in a very dark world. The accusers are gone. The people are still there. Now, the religious rulers that came, they took off, but there are still people there. This was a large gathering around Jesus as he was teaching them. There was a lot of people listening in, a lot of people to receive, and they're hanging on every word. And Jesus takes the opportunity with all their attention in the, they they just saw the darkness of the world personified. They watched, this is, you, you can't say it couldn't be darker, but this is pretty dark, pretty difficult. And he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world in a very dark place. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't walk in this darkness. If you follow me, you'll have the light of life, verse 12. Very powerful words. Now, I've noticed over the years, perhaps you have as well, that Christians, believers, churches, even whole movements of God, groups of people, can get off track of what's really important in our life because of the increasing darkness of the world. We live in a dark world. It doesn't, if you don't believe me, just take a pen and paper out, and while you're watching the, whatever channel news you choose to watch, just write down some of the things that are happening in your city. I mean, we live in a world that the more evil that takes place, the more desensitized we are. We live in a world where just miles from here, a deranged woman will go to someone's house because of a Craigslist ad, and literally cut the baby out of her womb. That's our world. That's our state. That's right up I-25. We live in the kind of world that when when, when those that are sitting there at their desk deciding what should we charge this deranged woman with, they come to the conclusion, no, no, she didn't murder that baby that was eight months alive in the womb, could have been fully delivered at any time, been in my hands to dedicate unto the Lord, but that's our world. I would say just that little, just that little episode. I don't get, well, I was going to say I don't get very angry very often. That's not entirely true. <laughs> but this one's really just, just stirred me to, I just, I, my heart is just crushed. Not only did she lose her child, just the way she lost her child. And then, and then, and then how it all went. It's just, that's our world. But here's the thing. Things like that can get you off track. And you go, Ed, what do you mean? Well, here's what's happened in many circles of the, of the world today, especially within the church, is that churches and believers are known more for what they're against than they are for who they're for. There's this attempt to curse the darkness. 
And there's a fine line, I would agree, by declaring the truth and cursing the darkness and spending your whole time cursing the darkness. What a dark world we live in. What a dark world we live in. What a dark, what, what kind of wickedness and evil. And, and there's a place for that. It, it happens morally. It happens politically. It happens spiritually. It happens practically where protests and petitions and sit-ins and boycotts and you know, it, it, it's easy to get off track of why God has put the church in the world, why we're here. Uh, I'm not opposed to any of those things, petitions, boycotts. I'm not opposed, opposed to any of, any of those things if the Spirit of God has led you to do that. That's the key. Not just to jump on the bandwagon and not just, like, if the Spirit of God has led you, then I have no argument with you whatsoever. But if you're just going to go around cursing the darkness, in a, you let me know how it's working for you. How many people are getting saved? How many people's lives are being changed? How many people are coming to a saving knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ? Who has seen the light in your, world, in your life? And I just notice as Jesus stands up, he's in the midst of darkness. I couldn't be darker. Uh, even as I use one little illustration in our own fine state here of this tragedy. And I understand the legal, I understand all that. And I just don't care. I think we need to shine the light of Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's easy to get off track and forget that Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus said to us that we are the light of the world. And how, pale, how, how we pale in comparison to the light that shines in our lives sometimes. We have the very presence of Jesus. It's easy to get unbalanced as the church is known for what they're against rather than who they're for. That's our reputation. We're identified as Christ followers. That's our life. And it's been wisely said, and I agree, that the best way to dispel the darkness is what? Just turn on the light. The kind of impact that you and I have, this is our community. This is our society. This is our neighbor. This is our legal system. This this is our world. How will we use it for the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, Jesus, when he sees this, he doesn't go up and, 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 and try to, you know, protest everything that's going on in the temple. He just says, you know what? There's people around me. You saw how crazy this is. You know, sometimes you just have to remember, people are watching your life. It's not like they notice everything that's going on. There were people watching this, and they're just shaking their head going, I can't believe this. What kind of craziness is this? These guys are perverse and twisted. And, and Jesus, he takes full advantage. Everybody watching in, he goes, you guys watching me? And he doesn't say that, but he recognizes that. And I, like I've shared with you before, you know, the people that I have the privilege of serving alongside of, the people I have the privilege of discipling and training in the ministry, I always remind them, every situation is a discipleship moment. The, the only difference is whether you took advantage of it or not. And this was a big one. Everybody saw this. And so how does Jesus respond? He doesn't turn around and go, you guys, don't take care of it. Don't take advantage of women. He doesn't say, hey, you guys, you know, if you're going to get into the ministry, you got to watch out for that. That might come at another time. You know what he says? He says, look, I am the light of the world. And this would immediately root them back into the word of God. Because throughout the scriptures, the light, throughout the history of Israel, light from God is very important. I believe Jesus is tying this in with the very, well, what the Hebrew would say, the Shekinah glory of God, the very light. Jot it down in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. During the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle was lit by the very Shekinah glory of God. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meaning, the Bible says, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later, the temple was also filled by that very same glory of God. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. But because of disobedience, the glory of God left, according to Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. And from that point on, the people had to light candles to bring light into the temple. 
symbolizing the Shekinah glory of God, but not experiencing the pure glory of God. And I find a lot of believers are like that. They're lighting candles as a symbol instead of experiencing what is already yours. The very glory of God in your life. It's already yours. How careful we need to be not to be known for what we're against, but to be known for who we're for. It's frightening, isn't it, to think about God removing his glory? But read through the little post-it notes that Jesus sent, sent to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation, and you'll see the warning. I'll remove your lampstand. If you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place. I will remove you and the very light that shine. I will remove. Or I think back in the Old Testament, remember in Judges chapter 16, Samson had gotten so far from God that the scripture says he didn't know that the Lord had departed from him. Or I think of our studies right now in the midweek, we're looking at King Saul, this guy with such great potential. And he too didn't recognize that God wasn't with him anymore. He went through all the motions. You could watch him from the outside, but this was a man that was not being led by God at all. He should have gotten the hint when the distressing spirits kept coming and hassling him, or he's battling in the demonic realm. He didn't get it. How careful we need to be. The light shining in our life is the very presence of Jesus. So he stands up and ties everything back into the word and gives them the, the step of freedom. Hey, you guys, I'm the light of the world. I've come. It's not the first time he said it either. If you remember back in Nicodemus, back when he was talking with the Pharisee Nicodemus, Jesus said the same thing in a different way in chapter 3, verse 19. Now, verse 13 now. The Pharisees, therefore, said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. It sounds very spiritual, but it's not spiritual at all. They don't, they're, they're not trying to be spiritual here, even though they know that according to Jewish law, two witnesses were required to make a personal charge valid. They're trying to make it sound real spiritual, but it's not. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Basically, Jesus is saying, I'm not a liar. Even if it was just me, I'm, I'm, you, you, see, you, see, you see what I've done? You see what, what uh, even if it was just me, uh, because I know where I came from, he says, and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone, but the Father, I am with the Father who sent me. Now, again, Jesus is always aligning up his life with the Father. He's in unity with the Father. He is in place with the... the he, he's equated himself with the Father. Why? Because he is God. He'll say later uh, in chapter 14, he'll, he'll speak about, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They've been at work together. They are one in nature. He says in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness of my... Well, excuse me, verse 17. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And that's, if you're jotting down, Deuteronomy chapter 17, Deuteronomy chapter 19, that's where it says that. I'm the one who bears witness of myself and my father who sent me bears witness of me. So there are the two witnesses, the minimum of two witnesses that are necessary, he and the father. And then they said to him, where is your father? Sounds like a very simple question, doesn't it? Where is your father? But don't forget, he's always being messed with and manipulated. And this is another example. This is, this is no where is your father. They, they know all about him. And remember, this is the, they've already done this previously. Because of his miraculous birth, there's always been this cloud hanging over him that he's illegitimate. And this is one of those statements, where is his father? Some commentators suggest that his father died young, and it was even a dig that he didn't have a dad that was still alive. Who knows? I, I, I tend to fall through what, what's more accurate in the sense that we know that he, 
he didn't have the kind of origins that all the other kids had. He was divinely uh, birthed in the womb of Mary. But he's digging. They're digging at him. Who's your father? Where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know me, this is verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Calm, cool, and collected is what I see Jesus here. I don't know that you or I would be so calm uh, in this environment, or you and I would handle these difficulties so well, but I'm impressed, and, and I'm humbled, and I'm encouraged, because the root of his answer is really in the word of God. And isn't that the safest place for you and I to be when we're being attacked or whatever might be going on in our lives with the safest places? I know what the Bible says, and here's my witness, and here's the facts, and, and just moving on. Moving on as those that would want to listen will receive. So the people were listening. I'm the light of the world. Then the Pharisees start arguing with him. And there's always an arguer or two around. Now, in verse 20 is interesting. It says these words. Now we get John's giving us a little bit of the location here. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. This, this was the area, the treasury, where he's at now. The treasury was the area commonly known as the court of the women. There was an outer court of the Gentiles around the, around the temple. Then the, the court of the women were in that area. And a woman was only allowed to pass through the court of the men in the various sections around the temple if they were carrying a sacrifice. But what's interesting, and John brings it out here for us, just so you can see it, what's interesting is this is also known as the area of the treasury. It was a place of giving. It was a place of celebration. It was a place of offering. It was a place where in that area there would be, I believe there were 13 offering boxes there that were shaped into the form of a horn. And, and they would be there as a, the tr- shape of a long, elongated trumpet. And they would be there to receive the offerings uh, financially of the people that were come to worship. The idea was this, you were coming to the temple to worship, and part of your worship was giving of your offering, not just your sacrifice, but your financial offering to support the Levites and to obey God and your tithe, the the giving there. This is where Jesus was, and he was there often. Now, this, there are many questions. We just had our Welcome to Calvary gathering last Sunday, and inevitably in that gathering, uh, the question is always asked, uh, and it was asked this way last week. Uh, so when, Pastor, do you take the offering here in your church? Do you take it before the message or after the message? And, of course, the answer is we, we don't take a formal offering here. So it's neither. We don't take it before or after And for 15 years, uh, for the life of our church, we haven't taken a formal offering. What a formal offering is, is usually in the last song of worship. That's how it was with the church I came from. During the last song, the ushers and the elders will come forward with bags. And during the worship time, they'll pass bags through the line, uh, through the different lines of chairs. And that's where you'll place your offering under the Lord. If you don't give online and you still write a check or you you just put it in the bag. And then that offering uh, is then received by the church and put through the process and use for the glory of God. We don't do that here. Rather, you'll notice around the building, maybe you haven't noticed, but you'll notice around the building, even the, in, especially in the sanctuary, but all around the building, we have offering boxes, very much like the treasury here. And the expectation is very much the same. You're coming to worship God. You're, you're coming to be a part of the family of God. This is your home church. So the expectation is that you give and that your giving is unto the Lord. And if you've been around Calvary for long enough, this Calvary, you'll know that we take a low-key, balanced approach to giving. 
And we just expect you, I believe, that it's important for you to give unto the Lord. That's what the Bible says. It's a place of obedience. And if you think about it, you think about it of all the things that God has in our lives. You know what? Giving is a really easy one to obey. It's very easy. Now, I don't know why so many people have problems with it. I mean, I do in some respects because of our maturity level or we're dealing with greed or fear or whatever that might be. Or maybe in a previous church you got ripped off and you're like, I don't want to get ripped off again. All those things, they're still not reasons not to obey God. Because if you did get ripped off at another church, and, and I'm sorry that you did, but if you, somebody took advantage of you, just understand this. Your giving was unto the Lord. You didn't get ripped off. And whoever took advantage of you, I would not want to be around them. Uh, in the, I don't even want to be near them in the judgment seat of God. I don't know how God, if he's just going to, I don't know what he's going to do. I just know I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there myself. I want to be a good steward. And I don't want to be around somebody that ripped you off. And so on behalf of the church at large, I'm sorry. It's just wrong. It's wrong that somebody would take your genuine sincerity and the heart of giving and then hurt you by that. But just remember, you gave unto the Lord and God will deal with them, but also God's going to deal with you because of your obedience. So we follow the same pattern. There are boxes here. We encourage you to give unto the Lord. Uh, To not give unto the Lord is disobedience. It's pure and simple. This is Abounding Grace with our Bible teacher and pastor, Ed Taylor. To give the study in the Gospel of John a second listen, just go online to AboundingGraceRadio.com or listen through the Calvary Church app. You can search for Ed Taylor to download that today. So, Pastor Ed, as you were talking today about staying on track in the light, something came to mind. As you know, there's been growing hostility, anger, and division in the church as a whole in recent years. How do you think this passage applies to what we're seeing in that realm? Well, you know, Larry, in our Bible study, I talked about how ye, how it's been noticeable over the years, especially the last few years, how easily Christians and churches get off track as they start attacking the darkness. It can happen morally, it can happen practically, and it can happen politically. So now the gospel is replaced with protests and petitions, sit-ins and boycotts. And even though I'm not opposed to those things within the right context of a Christian life, the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. And we must have our priorities in order. And I've been begging our church and anyone that would listen to me, seek ye first. That's a word of priority. Please, I'm begging you listening right now, please seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things will follow. It's easy to become unbalanced where now the church is known. And today, I think it's, I'm just reading an article a friend of mine sent to me from the Atlantic. Now the church is known for what we're against rather than who we love and serve. And there'll always be pressure from culture to change the narrative, to to give information that's untrue. And that's always going to be the case. However, let not what's shared be so true. Look, the church is only for what they're against. Well, I want to be known as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to be known as merciful and loving and a peacemaker. I actually did a Bible study. If you want to go to our website, I did a more recent Bible study on this topic entitled, Are You a Peacemaker or a Troublemaker? And a friend of mine had shared a similar message and it inspired me. So I developed a message on that. Are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Just go to our website, calvaryco.church. And it really elaborates on this question, Larry. But listen, let's get our priorities in order. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord. 
and let's go forward with the gospel, ministering his love, mercy, and grace, the practical side of ministering to the poor, ministering to the hopeless, ministering to the helpless, and let the Lord sort the rest of it out. Amen? God bless you guys. Very good. Thanks again, Pastor Ed. You know, it's one thing to get married and a whole other matter to stay that way. And today we'd like to recommend a book written by Steve Carr called Married and How to Stay That Way. It contains a wealth of practical solutions all based in the Bible. Written in a counseling style with practical encouragements from start to finish. It even includes discussion questions at the end of each chapter and a study guide. It's a great book to go through with your spouse or in a small group Bible study. And we'll gladly send you a copy for a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. And thank you for remembering us in your prayers and your giving to the Lord. Your gift, whatever the size, will serve to help us reach thousands with the message of Christ. Reach us toll-free at 877-30-GRACE. Again, that's 877-30-GRACE. Another study in the Gospel of John coming up next time on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. May God richly bless you with His abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing done for me. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.